Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Griefsters. Hope you're having an okay week. Thank you so much for your amazing messages about this new season, season eight. I really, really genuinely appreciate it. If you have been enjoying the show, please do. I know everyone asks you to do this, but please do rate and review. It really does help the podcast uh, get out to more people and subscribe as well so you don't miss an episode. If you have come from the new Spotlight pick, thank you so much. As I mentioned last week, we are so excited and extremely proud to be part of a new editorial program for Apple Podcasts called Spotlight, which means they choose one creator every month which they think you might particularly enjoy spending time with and this month is Griefcast so if you have joined us thank you so much this is a safe space where we like to talk about grief and death in a cheery fashion hopefully Um, well not always cheery but always truthful that's what we're going for so thank you so much for joining us this week I'm so excited to be talking to a showbiz legend I think that's fair to say The incredible Dame Arlene Phillips. Uh, Arlene is a dancer, a choreographer. She was a judge on Strictly Come Dancing. She created Hot Gossip in the 70s. Uh, She's choreographed, oh my goodness, so many films, West End shows, Broadway musicals, you name it. If it's had dance in it, she's been involved. And she's also an incredibly kind and generous person who gave up her time to speak to me, which I was ever so grateful. Arlene came in to speak to me about her mum who died when she was 15, and also several friends, very close friends, that she lost during the AIDS crisis during the 1980s. Arlene, who are we remembering today? Well, specifically my mother, who passed away when I was 15. Um, And some of the people, probably I'll talk about two, but... The number of people that I was very, very close to 
who died of AIDS in the early 80s, uh, which had a huge, huge effect on my life. So that there is sort of my grief as much as possible locked away so I can carry on with my life. And during the pandemic, I've allowed myself to open those boxes in my mind Mm. and really think about how I felt as opposed to, it's okay, I have to pull myself together, I have to get up and move forward. And Mm. the only way I can do it is just put all of this someplace in my mind and battle on. Um, so that's been a very interesting part of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, I can relate to that a lot. I'm, I'm very, I'm keep busy, keep busy. And I was the same. My life was very, very busy. And um, you have to, some, yeah, I think the pandemic's been very helpful, hasn't it? For going, oh, why was I that busy? <laughs> what was I avoiding? What was I didn't, I didn't want to look at? Um, so maybe should we start with talking about your mum? Yes. Was that your first big grief? What was yes. your mum's name? First of all, um, my mum was called Rita, Rita and uh, she was actually nicknamed Rita. She was actually born oh. Rebecca, but oh. yeah, her name, you know, to all of us was Rita, and to and to her family, it was a very a very short illness. My brother was seventeen. My sister was almost thirteen. And I was 15 years old, and my dad had discovered that she was feeling tired and bruised easily, Mm. and went to the doctor. And basically, by the the time she went to the doctor, um, they gave her three months to live, maximum. And she told my brother, uh, and he told my brother and me, and didn't tell my younger sister. None of us told her. We all felt that she was too young. And it was never discussed at home with my mum, ever. It was as though we were taking care of her, but she was going to get better. And what, so what was it that was wrong with her? She had leukaemia. And it was really early, um looking at leukemia in hospitals. Uh, My mum was 43. And I think when she went into hospital, they really had given it a name. And the only treatment they had was blood transfusions. Mm. And when I went to visit her, which we went to frequently, she was in hospital within a, a few weeks of the diagnosis almost immediately, in fact. And I remember sitting on the bed one day with her and one of the nurses coming in and saying, oh, my goodness, we're seeing more and more people with this illness now. We're going to have a a ward dedicated to it. And I have always wondered, where did this come from? Everyone seemed to be taken by surprise. Everyone seemed to, to be unsure of this disease and how they were going to cope with it. Um, There was a lovely girl in the hospital called Sally who was really quite young 
And I remember sitting often and talking to her mum about it. And um, one day we had a call at home and the doctor came with another man. We didn't know who it was when my mum was in hospital and asked if we had any tinned foods. And we said, yes. And he said, are they in a cupboard or are they on a shelf? I said, on a shelf. He said, can I check them? And he was looking at the if there was any dust or residue on the on the tins and we had no idea why and we know we lived near Jodrell Bank so only sort of then did we question why they were looking for a special dust mm. it was just the weirdest time it was not just weird it was surreal and we mm. saw people coming into the hospital when my mum was there and I've often had a you know many thoughts about what could have caused this where did they suddenly dedicate a ward to it in manchester royal infirmary when the nurses had not seen any of it it was awful it was the most terrible time and How strange yeah, yeah it seems that seems very it was just odd odd and, and i guess because i mean i can relate to losing a parent at 15 when you are 15 you have you sort of get about 50% of what's going on. You are a grown-up, but there's also another part of you that's like, I'm so confused. <laughs> like, what does that yeah. mean? What's happening there? So you, you always feel like you're trying to play catch-up with what's happening yeah. and what people are telling you. It's, and I guess you see, you, and you obviously seemed older than your sister. You know, you're yeah. not 30, you're not a child, but yeah. you're equally, your brain is not quite ready for this. Definitely not. And particularly mm. the, at the time... I was a child. Everybody at 15 really was was yeah. still a child. You were treated like a child, both in school and at home. You know, the teenager that wanted to escape and be free was too afraid to. Mm. Uh, and, um, and also, you know, my mum wanted us to stay home and help take care of her. So we sort of took it in, term, in turns, but... I wanted to spend every spare moment I could dancing and I look back and think how sometimes I just did not want to stay at home and there's that tremendous guilt of not wanting to stay at home. And when I heard that my mum was going to die, at at that moment, you know, I always regret that I didn't think of her and what she was going to go through and and the suffering it was going to cause her I just thought about oh my god if I've got terrible period pains who's going to put their arms around me and make me feel better who's going to who's going to always comfort me when I needed all I could think of was her in relationship to me and you you carry that guilt as what I call a proper adult. Mm. All you can think about is the those moments of not giving of yourself, not having the mental capacity of an adult to oh. go, this yeah. is how I have to res- respond. Mm. Um, you think of everything is according to you. I can relate to that very strongly (laughs) and I've talked about it a lot on the show like you know I was 15 and every reaction I had was about me and I've I've said it on the show before that the day 
he died, um, my mum said, you know, we need to go into the hospital to see him. And I said, I don't want to. Because we'd been in every day and I just wanted a break. Mm. I remember thinking, I just want a break. I don't want to be around sick people because you're a kid. Mm -hmm. You don't understand. And my mum said to me, well, I think you really do need to go in today. And I remember thinking, oh, that sounded serious. Mm. Don't ask any more questions. You don't want to know the answers. (laughs) And I have had, yeah, I mean a lot of therapy <laughs> to deal with that and to kind of be be much softer on that that child because for ages I was like why didn't I know why didn't I know and now I I it's taken a lot of time but I've I've reached a point where I think you're just a kid like of course you think about what they are in relation to you because you've never had to think anything else you've never had to see them as an adult and any 15 year old sees their parent as oh the person who's always there they're just there <laughs> like they do things for me and they're annoying like that's that's how you view them and it is but I completely understand that I've had I remember him asking me to take out like a tray of food because it was he was on chemotherapy and it was making him feel sick but I didn't know that I just thought he was hassling me (laughs) so I was like I'll take in a minute I'll take in a minute and we had this bust up because he was like it's making me feel sick but he didn't say that straight away and I felt so guilty but of course you know, you're still in that teenage mode of, well, the world is me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never thought of it like that. But yes, and the day my mum died was even worse, really, because I used to go and see her after school, pop in on my way home, go off at the bus stop earlier and then before I went home. And uh, I went in and my mum looked half asleep and I went to see her and then she started her teeth started to rattle and I ran out to get a nurse and then the nurses didn't let me back in and because I didn't realise what was happening and so I wasn't with her and it's really hard to live with. It's Mm. really, really, really so hard to live with. I I really can't bear to think about it. Mm. I know it's wrong and you should, but I can't. No, I don't think it's wrong at all. I think whatever, everybody's grief is completely unique and whatever you need to do to make sure that you can get through the day, I think is absolutely fine. Like never ever feel that, I don't think you should feel your your grieving is wrong. It's mm. extremely hard. And when are we talking? So what, like, when was this that this, this was happening? This was in, um, night 60. I mean, the times mm. at that time, I can imagine, was absolutely don't let children near it don't talk about it like that was what people thought was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. so it's very hard for for you to have any like you said those adult feelings or understandings when no one was also willing to let you do that in that situation no and we were told you know um we can't go to the funeral the aunts the uncles everybody that was putting it together said uh you know no no the kids shouldn't go and we, I remember being at my aunt's house and we were just sitting there. I mean, it's so wrong. Mm. So wrong. We should have been there. I, I've spoken to, yeah, you know, a lot of people who... There's that divide. I think by the 80s it started being like, well, maybe a child can be told. But even then I've spoken to people who lost parents in the 80s who, were, who weren't told. And I, it's such a pervasive, almost vic- Victorian idea that mm-hmm. just... You know, you'll hide it from the kids. You'll hide it from the kids. Of course, now that wouldn't happen. People share everything. But then you were a kid. Even my brother, who was seventeen. Yeah. No, not you know. So 
And the fact that, again, that we, we didn't fight to go, we just accepted. But I think it would have been very difficult to fight because if that's, it's not just your, you know, it wasn't just your family's decision, that was society's normal. Yeah. So it's very, it's very hard to see something as abnormal when everywhere you look, that's what happens. Children don't go to funerals, they're not told their parents are ill. So of course, it's like you've grown up in that, that world, that, um, that way of thinking. It's very hard to think, well, maybe that's wrong until you get, you know, older or society changes and, you know, you know, and I think from what I've read, the idea of children being involved is it's still so modern. And, you know, everything I've read now saying children should see the body, that's a really important part of the process. But I think for a long time, it just wasn't considered, it was it was considered damaging. Yeah. People just genuinely thought it would yeah. damage them. So it was yeah. like, well, the, we've got to look after them, look after them. the best thing they can do is not know it happened, yeah. but not understanding without that ritual of a funeral, you know, that's your closure. That's your okay. She's gone. Like it's yeah. very difficult. It must have been very hard for your sister as well. She oh, didn't even wasn't it, even let in terrible. on it. I think it's, I think it's affected her her whole life mm. too. I'm sure. I mean, how can it not? Because mm. again, we I spoke to um, stand up um, Ashling B. Do you know Ashling? Yes. And her yeah, her father took his own life, and they weren't told till they were much older. Again, under the guise of you know, they're too young to understand, and it's it's very difficult because as a child if you're not told something then you start to wonder well what else was I not I told what else wasn't true because how can you not you know how can you not um not yeah. doubt that yeah it, it it really is I mean I'm glad times have changed mm. um I really am uh because the the openness I think is important and you know, I've tried to pass on openness to my girls, but often we are our parents. And, yeah. and you know, change is, a, uh, it change is, very, is very slow. You know, I look mm. at the way my um, oldest daughter, who has two children, I look at the way she's bringing up um, her little ones, so open, so sharing and i think that's what is in many ways a new a new world yeah yeah definitely definitely and it's good it's a good thing but it of course that it's very painful of how it used to be done and so what you said when you went when you sort of went back to life after your mum had passed away she wasn't discussed again did your dad ever talk about her or no no my brother even finds it hard now, although we do share more because, again, the pandemic allowed him to think about it and think about yeah. our lives and, and just what it was like from when my mum died and the years after, the years leading up to it, the years after, which was so, so difficult and awful. Um, but he has shared that with me uh, fairly recently, actually. Uh, but my sister, yeah, she's she is the one, you know, as adults that we speak most about it to each other. Mm. We do, yeah. I'm very, very, you know, really close to my sister. Yeah, it's good that you've now got that openness. Yeah. With both of them. But yeah, mm. it's very difficult. Did you find after, you know, when you were 
you know, you're 15, she dies. Like, was did you then throw yourself into dancing? Is that kind of what became the deflection from... Yeah, dancing had her. always been my passion since I was small. But yes, it was all day, every day. I, I left school afterwards. I was broken. I was in the midst of what was called O-levels then. I didn't want to stay on at school, wanted to dance. I felt like I couldn't cope. I, I'd fallen behind in school. I didn't have the courage to go back, actually, which is quite strange. Um, I didn't want to face or have to tell the other girls in my class. Mm. Just really life-changing. So after... My mum died, it was almost the school holidays, and I just said, I don't want to go back to school. And I turned 16, so um, I didn't have to go back to school at the time, mm. and so left and started to study dance full time. But now I look back, I realise that I had no had no sense of grounding just a sense of of loss and mm. how are we going to carry on um, my dad became very ill after my mum died had blood clots in his arms he had one thing after another and we were trying to take care of him it's a difficult time uh, yeah that sounds really hard and like we said earlier when you're 15 you're really young. Yeah. It's really young. And I, it's taken me so long to realise that because I for so long was like, because when you're 15, you don't feel young. You feel like, well, I'm 15. I know mm. the world and I know who I am. And I would, I felt very defensive of that. Like I'm an adult basically. And then it wasn't until I suppose I hit, I hit my thirties really. And I was like, then I would meet, if you met a teenager and you think, look at that baby. Yeah look at them yeah. what was I thinking yeah. but to me at the time in my body I was like no no I'm a grown-up and you know he's died I'll get over it these things happen like I was <laughs> and mm. you're you're lying to yourself you're just spinning like you said with all this loss and your whole world has imploded and it's such a yeah it's such a catastrophic moment of just you know your life just turns upside down from from the moment they're dead it's it's of course you're not an adult and you don't really know what you're doing it's so strange because I actually think about my daughters um, who are 30 and 41, proper, proper grown-ups. But I can't imagine they could deal well with what yeah. I had to deal with at 15. Um, yeah. So it, it was really an extraordinary time in my life mm. um, and has it made me bolder or stronger I don't know I suppose a strong exterior without doubt but mm. one of uh, the producers that I worked with many times a long time ago now on Strictly who also lost her father when she was 15 mm. she said to me there's always something that remains in you where you find it hard to believe in yourself. She said, mm. I can tell 
when I'm working with or I get to know somebody, I can always tell if they have had that loss. Yeah, you know how yeah. they say a damaged person can recognize mm. another one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, she said, I can always tell. I, I, I can see in you where there are moments of you feeling, I can see outwardly very strong, but inside something is just fractured and I can always sense it. She said, you never quite have the interior confidence that somebody that had long surviving parents and hasn't been through that experience of loss when they're young, it's different. I can, yeah. She can see the difference. Yeah, I think she's right. <laughs> From you know being in the in the club myself, as we say on yeah. the show, and I think what it when you lose when you have a very when you have a loss young, especially a traumatic loss, you know. So my dad was quite similar in that he was diagnosed in February, dead by the April. So it was very sudden cancer. And that kind of sort of, it feels like an illness comes in and just swoops somebody away. Yes. It's like it, your foundations are a bit wobbly. And I think that's, yeah, you can be, it definitely, it's made me, I definitely feel strong in that I can cope with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, you know you can. You've yes. been through this awful thing. Yeah. You know you're, you know there's tomorrow. You know you'll get up. You know you just, somehow you'll put clothes on and you'll be all right because you know that's what you do. But yeah, that internal fragility of sort of yeah not I feel like I I notice it more when I meet people who who have both parents alive and they're like older Mm -hmm. so like say they're you know mid-30s or 40s and they've got both their parents alive and there's just I always think there's like a little extra glow Mm. of confidence I think wow for you you've still got those two people in your life and obviously that depends on those people being loving and cheerleading and kind obviously not everyone has that but I I definitely know your I sort of can sense it then when I think it's like it's like we've got different glasses on or something like we can we've we can see there's a lot of what tragedy can look like and the people who still have both parents it's slightly like they still have a faith in the world like everything will probably be fine and you're like hmm will it (laughs) will it be fine okay yeah Yeah. it's it is I mean it's like I said it's taken me years 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 of thinking about it processing it and then going to therapy much 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 later I didn't do anything till I was in my like mid-30s of thinking oh that massively affected me because I think and that's often what happens what I've read what happens with teenage loss is you can't really deal with it as a teenager Mm -hmm. and then your 20s you just go and do everything and then eventually by 30 you think oh there's a pattern these things keep happening maybe that's related to the death of my that parent mm-hmm. <laughs> but you sort of push it away for a long time because yeah. the thing is so big and you're so little yes. that you, you you can't you can't take it on board yeah. so you just have to like you said I really relate to that put it in a box yeah. move it over there <laughs> and then carry on with this because I don't understand what that is you know yeah it's so true it is so true and ultimately, where the, the sort of loss affects you, although you don't realise it, and this is, again, what my friend said, it's when something goes wrong, when something goes wrong, instead of, if you have not just an outward confidence, but an inward confidence, something goes wrong, and maybe it's your fault, you're able to face it, discuss it, process it, 
reach mm-hmm. out, put it right, with this no question of wanting to cover up, no question wanting to hide it away. And she said, I always notice something goes wrong. Instead of just standing up and facing up to it, people that have that loss quickly try to brush it. They know that they can put something away very quickly and, 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 and get rid of it, sort of not face up to it, but just cover it up, paper over the cracks. Yeah, and she yeah, said, yeah. I, I always think the, the people I meet, she's a me- mega producer in the US now, and she says, I will still paper over cracks and I can still yeah. find people that are papering over cracks or standing up without any thought that they want to cover over the moment. Yeah. Yeah, the papering of the crap, like put a plaster on it. Because that's what you had to do. Yeah. You know, you had to carry on after a huge loss. So yeah, I and I think, I sort of feel like I'm quite good in a crisis because I know how to like, yeah, paper over cracks. Come on, like just make everyone, as long as we're all breathing and eating and okay, let's go, go, go. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Keep moving, keep moving. Yes. And yeah, rather than being like, wow, this thing happened. And I definitely felt like that at the start of the pandemic. I was like, this is fine. I got this crisis. Like, come on, we can mm-hmm. do this. Just keep going, keep going. And um yeah, it, I mean, it, it changes you. It fundamentally changes you. And I thought that, fought that for a long time. I was like, no, I don't want to be the girl whose dad died and it changed me. But now I'm quite open about it. Like, yeah, it fundamentally changed who I am. Do you feel like that? Like, you can acknowledge it? Um, I don't think I'm quite acknowledging it. I mm. think I am still learning about it. Mm. still trying to connect what I have lost to the way it has affected me in my life. And I like to work things out for myself. I Mm. like to understand myself. It's something I've always tried to do, to look, to paint the situation and and look at it and try to fix it for myself um i've tried some therapy but and different therapists but it doesn't work for me partly because i'm not prepared to be honest enough with somebody else although i can be very honest with myself and i always think that there's Maybe at some time I'll need that help, but right now I always go along trying yeah. to trying to analyze it for myself, really. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's completely you know as I said it's completely individual. It took me a long time to find the right therapist. Definitely, yes. <clears throat> I tried lots and was like, "This is a, a disaster." Yeah, <laughs> and then eventually I found someone, and and I think I was also ready as you said I was ready to be honest about it yeah. I think I really thought that for a long time and and I sort of finally thought oh well you know I found someone who was smart and and could see through my tricks and, yeah. and when I played my tricks she caught me on it and I thought well I'm all right okay <laughs> but it's but you know it, it's very individual and you, you know definitely hugely hugely helped me definitely but I, I know other people who you know it just wasn't the right time or the right place yeah. and I think it, it, or it the is... right person right person yeah I think that is what is so important yeah you really and I, I always say that to people when they've tried one 
you know oh I went to one session I'm like no no it's like dating you, yeah. you wouldn't date go on one yes. date be like that's it you have to uh, yeah. keep looking yes. yeah. <laughs> until you find someone and yeah. think actually this person's all right yes hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. So Eileen, I wonder if we could talk about your friends, as yes. you said. Do you, is there, would you like to share their names as well? Yeah. In particular? Um, in 1979, I went to make a film called Can't Stop the Music with the Village People oh, wow. in Los Angeles. It was a huge, huge mega film called Can't Stop the Music. And actually, I was pregnant at the time and wow. the film was going on hiatus from the first half of the film, which was all of the weeks and weeks and weeks of rehearsals and initial filming in New York. Then there was a break of 10 days, and then we were coming back to do another three months filming in Los Angeles. And it was a wonderful time, a wonderful experience. Um, and I was pregnant uh, with a baby due within this space. Wow. Uh, and it all worked out absolutely beautifully. And there I was filming afterwards in Los Angeles, baby in the sling with a wonderful Winnebago outside. And I met the most wonderful, beautiful people. And just toward the end of the filming in Los Angeles, people, some of the young men on the film started to get sick. Our writer, a photographer, who I was very close to, the most wonderful, wonderful set photographer, who was just so loving of me and the baby and fun relationship, uh, spent a lot of spare time with me, called Roger. And then the writer of the the film, Bronte, was taken into hospital, very sick, and no one knew what it was. Um, He had lesions on his skin, and uh, 
then one of our young boys, a young boy who is one of the wrestlers in the film, wrestlers, because we had a big YMCA number with all kinds of sports activities, got sick. And we didn't know what was happening. Mm. Um, when I went back home, Christmas of 1979, when we'd finished filming, uh, Bronte Woodard, our writer, passed away from an unknown disease. And then when I went back to do the edit in February, um, I spoke to Roger and he told me I've been diagnosed with a disease. So I don't know if you'll want to see me. So I said, why? And he said, well, it's, uh, um, it's a disease that you can transmit it by kissing. Uh, and so I start to understand more about AIDS. I went to visit Roger and he made some soup. And he said, will you have some? I, I know a lot of people don't want to eat because I've been cooking. And it was a real internal battle. Mm. Um, I said, no, I will drink some of your soup and he was so fragile and so thin from September, October of last year this healthy yeah. strong man has suddenly faded away and then I went back home and heard he'd passed away when I got back to England one of the biggest biggest loves in my entire life had been a, a dancer who was French called Alain, who became a love of my life. He had assisted me on some jobs. We were very close. He was very close to me and this little baby. I ultimately think that he was probably the love of my life. We had had a very, very brief affair earlier, prior, in the late 70s. Mm. And he got sick. And when he got sick, he didn't want to see anybody. He wanted to just go away. He spent a lot of time in Switzerland, in the snow, because it made him think that, you know, life was not important. We were merely a snowflake here today and gone tomorrow. And he passed away in the mid eighties. And I had never experienced such loss, such grief. I was working in Germany. I was traveling back to see him on weekends. And I was absolutely devastated by his loss. I called my, I had called my daughter Alana after him oh. because of my love for him and his love for me, uh, which was beyond anything I've experienced. And then working in Germany on Starlet Express when I was going to see him, my assistant um, in the show, got sick, uh, a wonderful 
young boy called Glenn, American, working in Starlight Express. And he got so sick and I was caring for him as much as I could in Germany, going home to see Alain. And I remember Glenn begged to be taken to a place where he could die and everyone we planned to take him to Holland. And I remember sitting on the side of his bed, which had a little blanket over and I just arrived in Germany because I was going there and back and sitting with him. I reached out for his hand and just touch one of his legs and he let out a scream. And I realized that just a touch, the gentlest of touches was so painful. And I've never seen someone that was so close to death and realize the pain that they mm. were in is too harsh, too hard. And from then on, it just seemed that one after the other, these people that I was close to, that I loved, uh, being in New York in the mid-80s, boys who were in Starlight Express in Broadway, on Broadway, so all around me, in America, in Germany, in the UK, it was just surrounded with people I was close to dying unreasonably, irrationally, with what seemed to be no, no help, no cure, no care, just pushed into isolation, kept away from people as if they were dangerous. And in the pandemic, watching Russell T. Davis's mm. It's a Sin brought it all home to me. And that is what the pandemic did for me, is remind me of all of those years of trying to shut away all that monstrous grief that surrounds you every day wherever you went and to such a such an extent it 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 just defies belief mm. so that that all came back and the rush of that is i i actually feel physically sick when i when i even talk about it or think about it it's a different feeling mm. to the way I feel about my mum it, it's this hopelessness and helplessness on a on a scale because if this is how I felt as one person what is this mass collection of grief where, where do all those tears go, those rivers of tears? Where do they all go? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost compounded, isn't it? Because, like you said, you know, obviously, grief your mother is obviously huge and you're dealing with it, mm. but you're dealing with one person and you're, okay, that's all you're thinking about. But, yeah, of course, 
the AIDS crisis just yeah it becomes unfathomable doesn't yeah. it because yeah. and we had yeah. um I interviewed uh Ruth Coker Burks who's this amazing woman who was working in America in the 80s basically and she was in Arkansas she wrote a fantastic book called um, All the Young Men and she was basically the only person taking them in and looking after them and you know at the time when she went to visit a friend in hospital and then she saw this like door with hazard don't go in and she could hear someone wailing and the nurses wouldn't go in and Ruth just went in went in no mask nothing and just held this guy's hand and and all he was saying was please call my mum so she went to the nurses and said you know you need to call his mum and they were like well his mum won't care he's got the the gay disease so she said well I'm going to call his mum and she did call his mum and his mum said he's already dead so Ruth sat with him for like 24 hours till he died and then word got out she was someone you know like you said willing to be near the men willing to help them provide food and her whole life became about um caring for these young boys in Arkansas but yeah and I you know equally I after speaking to Ruth and then watching It's a Sin as well it it really did drive home of just like how yeah unfathomable is the only word I can think because you know we've just been through this huge pandemic where yeah people were just dying but for it to be sort of one category of like these young boys must have been so strange and surreal just to be like as if a war was on and you know young men were just not not coming back home so I think it's Ruth said the same thing of like she just couldn't grieve because you know you had a funeral every day so she was like there was nowhere to put it until eventually you know she started getting a lot of physical ailments but she was like oh obviously my body is like begging me to deal with what's happening but I mean of course it's just overwhelming were you with Alam when he died yeah yeah Alan was in London and mm. we, his closest friends, were there, his little group. Mm. Um, I didn't ever wear a mask and I didn't ever wear gloves. I just refused. I felt mm. that someone or people I love so much, it can't possibly spread by a touch, a gentle kiss. I mean, of course, that's all been proved, you know. Yeah. The, the, the severity of transmission was not by any means. But, yeah, it was, again, a time in my life that I realised, um, although I... I I talked about it. I talked about it from the surface mm. of something that happened. I never, ever let it dig inside me as much as it has done. And that was totally due to it's a sin. Mm. Um, completely. Uh, it's only now that I have started to remember the moments, the times, the, the party I went to on Fire Island, which was wonderful and wild and, oh my gosh, best time of my life. And yeah, 
the numerous people that died after that party. It's quite unbelievable. Mm. So there is this whole basket of grief, yeah. if you like. And how do you feel it's so, you know, you, I completely understand that at the time it's just too much. It's too much. There's too many people dying. How do, how do you even process it? And like you said, so you've had this pandemic. How has it been sort of, how has the basket been opening? <laughs> or have you just been thinking, allowing, just even allowing yourself to think about it? Is that as much as it's, uh, it's the process begins? It's allowing myself to think about it. I have posted some pictures of me uh, and Alain together from mm. our joyous times together. I allowed myself uh, to be honest about our relationship and allowed myself to think through of those moments. You're talking about how grief can affect the body mm. and what happened to me at the time when I was going there and back to... Germany, I was actually having the most incredible teeth problems, like blistering on my gums. Mm. And I never, ever related it to the effect, the emotional effect that it had on me. Mm. Could even be due to the effect and the trauma that I was going through mm. and only realised, uh, again, thinking about it, uh, because I didn't say anything at the hospital, just I've got this, this, this. Again, they didn't ask questions. You've got a toothache, yeah. you've got a toothache. Yeah. You know, yank it out or whatever. I didn't... Uh, my uh, question why I was getting so many infections, mm. but I think now... It was related to what I was going through. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of evidence of the body. There's an amazing book, isn't it? The body keeps the score. Yeah, and you know, and there's so much, and there is literal scientific evidence of like stress affects you. And we know, you know, if you have a stressful life, you might have a heart attack. Like we mm. can sort of accept that. But I think it, we're sort of moving into a period now where it feels like people are willing to accept, oh, yeah, if you have a massive grief, it might come up physically, especially if you can't process it, especially if it's too much. Yes. And Ruth talked about that sort of, you know, looking after these boys for years and years and years. And then, like, something, what did she say? She went to the hospital and um, they were like, oh, your heart literally has an infection. And she was like, oh, yeah, like really and it was like it was hot her heart was mm -hmm. in agony and, I, and she was like yeah it was because I had buried so many over and over and and hadn't you know and had her own daughter had just got on with it had just mm -hmm. dealt with it and I think that level of pain and of course it affects your you know your you're vulnerable aren't you you're yes. vulnerable yes. so your immunity is down yeah. and all these things can get to you and you're so tired and you're worrying about someone all the time and something someone you love is in pain that it, it hurts it hurts you and, and also we know that the the gut and the mind are connected mm. yeah yeah so of course I realize in some way I was really slightly destroying myself Mm. but you can't think about anything else it consumes you it absolutely yeah. consumes you people suffering 
in many ways so wrongly because they were in a way not treated by the people, the humans that they were um, uh, as individuals with this disease, but as though they were a collective not to be touched. And it, it is, again, so hard to, to think about and the pain and the suffering. I can't imagine. You know, yeah, it's 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 trauma on top of trauma, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you know those men were and those people were suffering anyway. And again, you know, we've talked about this, but to then be treated as if you are disgusting and dirty, and there's mm-hmm. something wrong with you, and you're contagious, and and what yeah, have you been done? What 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 have you been up to? Yeah, which you know, as you said, when you're already dying and in agony, that's. Mm. And the thing that really stuck me from Ruth is she said that when they sent boys to her to look after, they lived for longer than the American average. Because she, and, and she said the doctors came down to study, well, how comes her patients with AIDS are living longer? And she was like, because I love them. Mm-hmm. She was like, I fed them butter and I fed them fried food and I fed them up and I looked after them and I cared. And she said if they went to a hospital, they were dying within six weeks because mm-hmm. nobody cared. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's, if mm. that isn't just all the proof you need of what humans really need, you know, of course you need drugs and new medication, all those things are amazing, but to have someone who cares about you can can keep you going. And it sounds like you were really having to give so much to Alan and Glenn and your mm. friends to just, they had that community, which I think was portrayed so beautifully in It's a Sin, that the oh. community just had to wrap around them because yeah. no one else was. Yeah. And, and we did, Alan's friends, uh, who I was very close to, we were a very close group, all surrounded him with, a, with a, as much love that we could. His father never came to see him, his mum did, but we denied that it was AIDS, of course, uh, in total denial. But that's her. Yeah. That's her way. We would not, if we could, let her deny it. Mm. Do you find yourself, have you been, how do you sort of remember Alan now? Is there any, do you think about his anniversary at all or is it more just allowing him to be, even allowing to remember him? No, he's he's so in my life. Birthday... (laughs) <laughs> everything, everything about him is in my life. And to my daughter, Alana, yeah. you know, she carries that name and is proud to. And she had absolutely adored him, adored him. You know, you're always talking about how love can keep people alive. And, you know, you started right at the beginning talking about how the pandemic has affected Uh, me and isn't it strange that the thing that people miss most you know whether it was families or you know those in hospital with Alzheimer's and care homes that were not allowed to see anyone the thing everyone missed was a hug 
Mm. And human touch, I know I said about my first thought about my mum was who's going to hug and hold me. Mm. And, you know, our life force is hugs. Mm. And when they're withdrawn, for whatever reason, through being told someone has AIDS or someone is too frail to touch mm. or someone is apart and can't reach out to those that they love or love them for hugs, it's, it's some piece of life that, that is missing. Mm. Oh, Arlene, that's beautifully put. So I'm going to end it there because I think there's nothing, nothing more to be added than, yeah, hugs, hugs are, should be on prescription. <laughs> yeah. They are vitally important. Mm. Thank you so much for talking to me about your mum, Rita, and Alan and Glenn and all the other friends that you lost at that time as well. I really appreciate it. It's, it's, I've got to say it's a pleasure it is but it's it's, um, it's it's tough but it's beautiful you can follow Arlene on Twitter and Instagram at Arlene Phillips you can follow the Griefcast on Twitter and Instagram at the Griefcast that's at the Griefcast the show was edited by Kate Holland. It was recorded uh, remotely uh, in my living room and I think Arlene's living room as well. The music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.